Jim Park has nearly 30 years of experience in the private, government, and nonprofit sectors and has successfully launched a number of financial services-related businesses. He has dedicated his career to supporting issues related to diverse communities, mortgage finance, and affordable housing issues. Jim is one of the founders and partners of the Mortgage Collaborative, which works with small and mid-sized lenders to strengthen their market power and to create innovative business solutions. He is also a founder of Housing Renaissance, an industry forum that brings top real estate market leaders. He is also serving as the senior advisor to the Board of Association of Asian American Investment Managers and in the past has served as the chair of the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. In 2013, Jim was the chair of the Asian Real Estate Association of America. Meet the leaders shaping the new era of credit. This is the Vantage Core Podcast. Today, we talk to Jim Park, co-founder of the Mortgage Collaborative. Part 2. There's a lot of different things at play with the Asian American community in terms of home ownership. It's one, you know, remember that Asian Americans are the fastest growing community in the country, right? Racial group. For the last, since year 2000 to now, it's been growing at a faster clip than any other community in the country as a percentage. When you have a population that's growing at that rate, and, and as you know, homeownership rate is based on the number of homeowners divided by the number of population, right? So that population is growing at a rapid rate. And for us to grow during that period of rapid population growth and homeownership growing at that clip, that means that our homeownership access was even greater than the population growth, right? Because that's the only way you can actually see homeownership growth. So the demand, desire, and ability to get homeownership within the Asian community has been really strong. But we also know that if you look at just basics, income, credit, and reserves, if you look at just those three factors, our overall numbers are better than the white community for every one of those factors. So someone could argue, hey, your home ownership rate should be comparable or even higher than the white population, right? And in fact, there's been studies done over the years by certain researchers saying that, that the entirety of the home ownership gap that Asian Americans face relative to the white population is not explainable. There is nothing that can say this is why it's lower. So my view is there is some structural and institutional barriers that are there. Maybe it's educational barrier. Maybe some of it has to do with some of the work that you all are doing, which is to look at credit in a more creative way. But there's a lot of things that the industry can be doing to bridge that unexplainable gap that's in the market today. If you look at the individuals with limited or low you know, trade lines, people that don't have much in the way of credit history, they don't get a credit score. And without a credit score, it's almost impossible to get financing, right? As, as an example, we know that Asian Americans are more likely to fall within that bucket. They don't necessarily have what they pejoratively call it bad credit, that is you miss payments or what have you in the past. But the lack of credit history has eliminated their ability to access finance. So it's not like they have any credit. The lack of credit history has just basically said you cannot participate in the home buying process. But we know they also are good credit. So that's not the only determinant of, of, you know, using your credit card and all that is not the only determinant of whether you're a good credit risk or not. So one of the things that we want, we're challenging the industry to do is to look at it more creatively. Are there other things that they're doing? Can you look at their rent payment? Can you look at their 
other uh, utilities payment or other things to say they are a good risk. They have been paying everything on time and they have sufficient reserves to back it up. I think the industry also has done some good work over the years around kind of multi-generational lending and so on. So there's been underwriting improvements that have been done, done that has opened the door. But I think we should continue to kind of look at different ways. Because many of the people that are coming and immigrating to this country, some of the financial structure of those countries are very different from what's in America. There is no such thing as building up credit history in certain countries. There is more of a cash-based society in some cases. So it's just different behaviors. And the challenge is that a lot of the credit scoring models of today are based primarily on non-minority financial patterns of the past. And we just need to keep improving on those things going forward. It takes a while to build credit history. So if you're a new immigrant, it's going to take a number of years. You know, they might come here and have a perfectly great job, but they don't have the credit history to be able to potentially access home ownership. So those are some of the things I think we have to think about. Is there other ways to look at credit and credit worthiness in this country? Definitely more um, of that in this country related to the Asian American community. I think also the Hispanic community has similar kind of behavior pattern around that as well. But also, I think it's not a monolith either. Like, you know, that's, that's the thing. It's hard to put a blanket statement on the Asian community, like, you know, 20 different countries, all these different ethnicities within it, language, and there's different behaviors within it. But I do also know that as people are here longer, they acclimate to more of, oh, I want to be independent, be on my own. So it's not, it's not like across the board, you're seeing multi-generational. You do see it definitely more than the average for sure. But it's, it's not like that's the case across the board. It has led to many Asian Americans buying bigger homes because that's you have to fit more people in. You have three generations living under one roof, sometimes four. So you do see that kind of pattern. Our expectation in this country is very different in that regard. I think farmland or just land ownership, I think, is um, it's an interesting topic, right? Because my son actually just graduated from Berkeley this last week. And in the beginning of the ceremony, and I had never seen this before, um, one of the, the MCs, I guess, they talked about where the occupier of, and I forget the tribe's name that used to reside where Berkeley sits now, or that whole East Bay. And they kind of said, you know what, this was not our land at some point. And so they actually recognized it. And I, th- I thought that was kind of an interesting, powerful thing. You have, we have to remember that land ownership is critical. I mean, that's where wealth gets, you look at all the really wealthy individuals in this country, a lot of them are landowners, whether it's farmland or any land. That's why I think the idea of the American dream of home ownership, it's all connected, right? You need to own. That's how you build wealth. And that's why I think when you have a minority home ownership gap, whether it's minority home ownership or minority farmland gap (laughs) or whatever it is, we have to figure out ways to create broader access for everyone so that they have a shot at owning something. I mean, we see this right now during the whole pandemic, right? Think about like home prices and people that own assets, that's appreciated during this period of time. So those individuals that don't own that rent or they don't have different assets, they're in a worse place than before. But people who had ownership, whatever the asset was, 
they probably ended up at this point in the pandemic, probably in a better economic position than they were before. I mean, that gap's going to keep widening unless we figure out a way to give people more direct access to ownership in every possible way. Recently, I, I started to work with an organization called the Association of Asian American Investment Managers. It's a network of Asian Americans in the investment business, all in you know, an asset class. Idea is to create an environment where we can support the growth of entrepreneurship, Asian American growth in the investment field. Just by way of context, if you look at all the assets under management in this country, all the investment assets that this country has, only about 1.7%, I believe, about 1.7% of all investment assets under management is managed by a woman owned company, minority owned company combined. That means 98.3% are managed by white male-owned company. And you think about the wealth gap. You know, this is all the investment that flow in and out of this country. And that, you know, those dollar decisions, investment decisions decide the path of a lot of both not only individual wealth, but it, it also is a driver of economic growth and where things get invested. We also know that. Minorities, minority investment managers tend to invest in more likely to invest in minority owned businesses. We know that women owned investment firms are more likely to invest in women owned businesses. So, if you want to try to create a more equitable society where people have access to capital so they can build their business, find the funding, if you want that, right? If as a society we want that, then we need to figure out ways to include more. Asian Americans, Hispanics, African American, more women to be a part of the decision making process of investments in this country. And that's why I, I was excited to get involved with this effort because at the end of the day, we can kind of tinker around the margins. But I think as a, as a society, we, if we really want to make massive change in the way we function as an economy, then we need to allow more diverse people. To be at the steering wheel of making these decisions about investment in this country. So that's why I, I'm involved in it. You know, the Asian community, I think, despite the fact that a lot of people think that the Asian community is well represented in, in the investment field, the fact is that when you look at ownership, it's less than 1%. It's 0.7% of, of funds managed in this country are managed by Asian Americans. So it's less than 1%. And if you look at the Professionals within the financial field, if you look at the top top investment banking firms in this country, about 15% of the workforce are Asian Americans in these firms. But that doesn't translate into ownership. It doesn't translate into growth into middle management and upper management. As a community, we get kind of get stuck at the bottom doing all the work. <laughs> And then we don't get the benefit of kind of upward mobility. And that's the part that we're also trying to work on, which is how do we change that dialogue so that people, once they're in, have an equal shot at moving up. Part of it is, I think, whether it's model minority myth discussion that we had earlier or kind of perception of how Asian Americans should function in a financial, you know, hey, you guys are good at numbers, crunching numbers, but you're not good at sales or management, right? That's sort of the perception. And we have to change that because that stalls our ability to give people equal opportunity for growth. So that's kind of some of the things that we're working on now. And it's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. 
sometimes I feel like we're tinkering at the margins. There have been a lot of folks, real trailblazers in the Asian American community that's been working very, very hard for many, many years. I know Norma Netta was mayor of San Jose, became congressman, then became cabinet secretary under both Clinton and Bush, is a sort of a hero of mine. He's one of the individuals who actually worked on a resolution to designate the month of May, the May that, that we're in now, as Asian Heritage Month. It was another uh, congressman out of New York. And they tried to do it in 1977, I believe, was the first time they tried to do it. But Congress, then the whole idea was to, it was actually a week back then, they wanted to celebrate the Asian American contribution into the U.S. and celebrate all the success we've had. They didn't get enough votes. They couldn't get enough support to pass it that first year. So they went at it again the following year. And they did get the support and that resolution got passed ultimately. Uh, but I think it just speaks to the resiliency of our community, which is, you know what, let's not let these setbacks stop us. Let's keep going. But there had been a lot of setbacks. I think more recently, you know, we talked about the hate crime, all that earlier. And, you know, it was a setback. I felt like a big setback that we were building a more just society. We were building a more inclusive society. But when you see this, and obviously the whole killing of George Floyd, all that has happened, compounded by what we saw with the hate crimes against Asian Americans in this country, you do kind of sometimes kind of sit back and say, boy, we've been working hard on lots of different things, you know, Asian home ownership or minority home ownership or financial literacy for everyone, all of these important topics. And then sometimes you kind of sit back and you go, okay, this was what happened to all the progress we were making. But I do think there's a silver lining. One thing that I see more than ever within the Asian community now is we are more willing than ever to speak up, be a part of the dialogue. And I think it's been too long where we have sort of kept our heads down and thinking that keeping our heads down, avoiding the conflict, and just trying to get ahead through education and hard work. Fundamentally, I think people realize that's not enough. You have to be part of the broader dialogue that's going on in America, and we have to be part of that solution. And we can't be shy about speaking up. I go back and I go, okay, there were times when I was younger where I should have spoken up more when these racial statements were made or slurs were thrown at me or what have you. I should have spoken up more. And I think in some ways, other minority communities would not have stood by and not said anything. And we have. And I think that time has to come to an end. And I think it is coming to an end because I see more and more people being part of that movement. So yeah, that's a silver lining. So I'm, I'm excited about what's ahead for our community. I'll point to one last thing I worked on during the ARIA days. Asian Real Estate Association some time ago worked with the Census Bureau because Census Bureau puts out a report on a quarterly basis that talks about housing statistics. And it lists out like all the uh, racial groups, right? White, Black, Hispanic. And then Asians were always in what's called the other category. So we weren't even, we didn't even have our own box. It was this other. And we were combined with Native Americans, Native Hawaiians, Native Alaskans, people with mixed race, and so on, and a few other categories. We represented probably about two-thirds of that other category, but we were always the other. It perpetuated the view that we weren't part of this society, that this idea of a perpetual foreigner 
idea. And so we actually said that's not acceptable anymore. We need to have our own place. So we, we work with the Census Bureau, the White House, Asian Caucus in Congress to get that change. So now we have our own, Asian Americans have their own housing data that's connected to it. And so we said, you know what, it may not feel like a big deal, but it's important that we all have a place in the sun. Because if you don't talk about it, if you don't talk about Asian home ownership, then people aren't going to create solutions around it. It starts with data and transparency. And, and those are the kind of things that I feel we chip away at, whether it's injustice or lack of recognition. But I think those things are starting to happen in a more concerted way as a community. And so I'm so very optimistic about it. I'm optimistic about where we will go as a community and as a society, because I think we'll have a bigger voice in it in the future. So I'm going to be an eternal optimist. I think there needs to be more research done about the Asian American condition in this country. So we have ways to go. And I think there needs to be some disaggregated data because the Chinese American experience is different from the Vietnamese American experience or the Hmong community. And we really do need to see the community with all the wonderful differences that we have, but also the economic and social conditions of certain Asian American community, some subpopulation is so very different. And we need to work towards understanding that better as a society, certainly as a government, because we don't do a good enough job of that still. And certainly as companies, because companies tend to kind of do, you know, a lot of companies don't even recognize, they don't even pursue specific efforts around the Asian American communities. When you look at talk about minority initiatives, a lot of times Asian efforts are completely not even mentioned, sometimes totally excluded. And so we have to change that. So I think it starts with recognition and data and transparency around what we're doing, you know, as a society. The other thing that I think ultimately is that we have to make sure that people at the top reflect the community at large. And so the thing that we're working on right now is looking at corporate boards, major company boards. We need to make sure that they represent Asian Americans on those boards because Asian Americans represent 10 to 12% of the professional workforce in this country. The population is at 6%, but if you look at the professional workforce, it represents double that, right? So, but if you look at the board, senior management, it does not reflect anything close to it. This would go for other diverse communities and women. Uh, we need to make sure that corporate America needs to look like America. Right. And I think it's far from it still. And so that's one of the big initiatives. I think there's areas where I can continue to contribute in that way and continue to kind of speak up. So one of many things, but I think those are kind of top of mind. And I would just kind of finally just say the work that you all are doing Advantage Sport is important because we do have to sort of challenge the status quo in terms of how we look at the credit worthiness of different population. And you definitely have pushed the envelope on that. And we need more of that in this country. We have to innovate more. Sometimes when you have one credit scoring system that dominates and without any other competitors in the market, that's not good for America and it's not good for the economy as a whole. So keep up the good work. Thanks for letting me be a part of this dialogue with you. And I look forward to seeing you soon.
The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Vantage Core Solutions. This podcast is brought to you by Vantage Core Solutions, a higher level of confidence. Thanks for listening.